Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today is Saturday, October 15th, 2016. And tonight we're going to present part 15 of our series titled The Protocols of Satan. I pray I'm not boring people to death with this material, but my purpose here is to dig into some of the details that and, and supply enough historical detail to prove that the protocols are true, that they were executed, that they were executed by Jews against all of the nations of the West, especially. And maybe one day when our people realize the problem, only then will they realize that the only solution is the final solution. In the last segment of our presentations of the Protocols of Satan, we covered a variety of topics. First, we compared the concept of the state, as it was imagined by Frederick Bastia, to the concept of a state as it was explained by Adolf Hitler. In the mind of Bastia, the economy is greater than a state, and the state is only a bully which may be bent to the will of one group or another who use it to gain economic advantage for themselves over the rest of the population under its rule. And this is the status quo of every Western state today. This is exactly how all of our so-called liberal democratic governments operate today. To Adolf Hitler, the state was quite different. The state was an organism of a people, was formed to represent the interests of the people, and maintains an economy subservient to its will in a manner which is, theoretically at least, beneficial to all of the people of the particular nation. So to Bastia, money comes first, and the people are victims to its whims. Sounds like the Judas Iscariot of the New Testament, if you ask me. While to Hitler... Money serves the people, and the people have an obligation to serve one another. The view of nation and economy, which was upheld by Bastia, serves the Jewish interests. And that is the liberalism which has prevailed throughout the West from the 19th century to this very day. The Hitlerian view of nation and economy is anathema to the Jew and had to be destroyed by the forces of Jewish capitalism which have come to dominate all nations. I do not know if we could find better models by which to contrast these important differences in economic philosophy which had played a significant role in the events of modern history. For over 200 years, the world has been caught in a deception. The battle, the supposed battle between Marxism and capitalism. The dichotomy of Marx versus Bastia, sold to the people and accepted, even disseminated by the shallow minds of mainstream academia. In reality, both systems have profited the same globalist Jews, and neither system is good for the nations. 
This is quite the same as the dichotomy between Calvin and Arminius, a false dichotomy offered to the people who will choose one side or the other when both sides have always been partially right and partially wrong. Caught in the dichotomy between two seemingly opposing and heavily promoted views, all other options tend to be ignored. This is especially true if they contain elements which can appear to be found in one or the other of the views being promoted. So, for instance, Adolf Hitler's National Socialism, which was actually a sound economic system that eliminated a usury-based currency, is to this day dismissed by those same shallow minds simply because they have accepted the confusion that Marxism is socialism. In truth, Marxism is not socialism, and before Marx, socialism had an entirely different meaning than it is perceived to have today. Then, in another aspect of our presentation, we again compared the political philosophy of Adolf Hitler to that of the authors of the Protocols, where they had said that only an autocrat can outline great and clear plans which allocate in an orderly manner all the parts of the mechanism of the government machinery. In this aspect, Hitler and the Protocols agree in substance and differ in execution. The Jews who devised the Protocols understood something, something that Hitler also did. That parliamentary democracy is virtually ineffective. It's a virtually ineffective way for a nation to be governed. The Jewish remedy is evident in the history of all nations which have adopted liberalism. They are all now governed by an unseen hand hidden behind many offices and layers of bureaucracy, while the elected rulers merely seem to be figureheads. Hitler's remedy was to marginalize the Bundestag and concentrate power in the hands of responsible individuals at several levels, all who would be accountable to a single ruler, a man who would be democratically elected, and then invested with the ability to rule authoritatively through the duration of his term. While his enemies slandered Hitler as a dictator, all along they knew that he was right about the nature of leadership and the rule of nations. Then in the last part of our most recent discussion of this first of the protocols, we encountered a line which reads, speaking of the quote-unquote goyim, look at those beasts, steeped in alcohol, stupefied by wine, the unlimited use of which is granted by liberty. And with this we offered a lesson from scripture. The Rechabites, a tribe of the Canaanites, had of old been admonished to refrain from alcohol by their ancestors. Yahweh, the God of Israel, used the obedience of the Rechabites to their father as an example, that the children of the devil would be more faithful to their ancestors than the children of God were to their father. We would venture to assert that, for this reason alone, the Jews have come to rule over all of Christendom today, because Christians don't practice Christianity. So we shall continue discussing the first of the so-called protocols of the learned elders of Zion, as they are found in the book, The Protocols and World Revolution, attributed to Boris Brasol, and published in Boston in 1920.
But before we begin, and because the current topic of the protocols is alcohol abuse, I want to offer an offhand discussion voicing my own opinion on the prohibition movements of the 1920s and 30s. I say movements because there was more than one. While I have not yet done all the research which I need to document this, and do not even know if others have done such research, I will say these things regardless because I am confident that they are true. It is apparent that the means by which public support for a cause is gained does not always reflect the original reasons for which the cause is promoted. And in fact, if a cause is being promoted for a certain reason, you can often bet if it's being promoted that way in the mass media, on television, newspapers, radio, that that cause is being promoted for a reason quite different than the reason that's apparent. Here we may be in danger of oversimplifying history, but we shall nevertheless risk the venture. One case in point is the American Civil War. Almost as soon as Andrew Jackson fashioned his whip to drive the Jewish bankers out of Europe, the Jewish bankers of Europe out of the United States Treasury, the Rothschilds began to flood the states with abolitionist agitators. While the abolitionist movement had begun in England long before that, and therefore it was nothing new, the facts that Jackson sought to close the Second Bank of the United States as soon as he took office in 1829, and that slave revolts in the South were instigated and heavily publicized by the newspapers from 1831, was not a coincidence. And while other factors, such as the tra tariffs, which were driving a wedge between North and South, it was the Rothschilds and other Jewish bankers of London who sought to create the circumstances by which the states would be divided, and slavery was the issue which raised the greatest emotion among the common people, especially once the churches became involved. So abolition was not invented for this purpose, but it was a convenient vehicle by which to exacerbate the conflict. The Republican Party in the North was formed in the unholy alliance of capitalist business and northern Protestants propagandized in favor of abolition by their churches. Likewise, the alcohol prohibition movement of the early 19th century came as the automobile and motorized farm tools were becoming popular, and farms across the country were fueling their engines with alcohol that they made themselves. Farmers were selling their alcohol to people who could afford automobiles, as well as fueling their own tractors. When Prohibition passed, it destroyed this industry and made farmers, as well as everyone else, dependent on Rockefeller gasoline. In the meantime, the principal bootleggers were Jews, who destroyed their competition and ended up controlling a great share of the legitimate liquor industry once Prohibition was lifted. The Bronfmans, who owned Seagram's, are a primary example, as they were bootleggers to the mobs of the underworld throughout the Prohibition period, especially to the Capone, Capone gang in Chicago. The assault on the hemp industry, another profitable cottage industry for small farmers and rural families, had come much earlier and is far more complex. Extracts made from cannabis were available in American pharmacies, 
from the 1850s. But by 1905, cannabis, hemp, and substances prepared from them were listed as poisons in the laws of many individual states. That doesn't mean that they were outlawed. That, that, that they were outlawed. That only means that they had to be labeled as poisons when they were sold. The Federal Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 merely required that items containing cannabis be labeled as such. Throughout the 1930s, Henry Ford had been making automobile fuel and ethanol fuel additives from hemp. Then in 1938, the Drug Act was updated to outlaw cannabis, and the greater hemp industry was outlawed along with it. The campaigns to have marijuana outlawed in this fashion had been connected to industrialists and bankers such as the DuPonts and Andrew Mellon, who also controlled Gulf Oil Corporation. It was in the DuPont interest to outlaw hemp so as to broaden the markets for their new synthetic fibers, which were also petroleum-based. These same forces seem to have been behind the anti-marijuana propaganda campaign which had begun in the 1920s. The pharma industry, the pharmaceutical industry, also benefited greatly when marijuana became prohibited. In 1936, a movie which came to be called Reefer Madness was first produced by a church group and was edited several times and was distributed through the 1940s and 1950s. I will have a link to that movie. We host a copy of it at Christagenia. While marijuana was already generally outlawed, it is typical of propaganda which has perpetuated the negative image of a very beneficial plant. We cannot support a slavery-based economy because it harms free white men. It prevents free white men from fair opportunities of employment. It destroys the wage base. However, on the other hand, the result of the American Civil War was that capitalism had prevailed and has enslaved all men to corporate interests. But at every turn, whether it was the abolition of slavery, or alcohol, or hemp, the capitalist bankers and the speculating industrialists, who were mostly Jews, were the beneficiaries of the political outcome. The government has continually operated for the commercial interests and not for the people. All of these so-called movements were also revolutions created by the newspapers and the, the manipulation of the organized religions in the spirit of the protocols. We discuss these things here because this part of protocol number one asserts a lack of temperance among the goyim, but all of these topics are also avenues of investigation we hope to wander along further in the near future. Here we will commence with our presentation of the protocols and from the point where we left off in protocol number one. Surely you cannot allow our own people to come to this, speaking of the drunkenness of the goyim. The people of the goys are stupefied by spirituous liquors. Their youth is driven insane through excessive study of the classics and vice to which they have been instigated by our agents. Tutors, valets, governesses, in rich houses, by clerks, and so forth. 
and by our woman in the pleasure places of the goys. Jews putting their own women up as whores by our women in the pleasure places of the goys. Among the later, I include the so-called society women, their volunteer followers in vice and luxury, meaning the wives of the upper classes. And this is where the protocols themselves are somewhat misleading. We had previously seen them boast, look at those beasts steeped in alcohol, stupefied by wine, the unlimited use of which is granted by liberty. However, it was not liberalism which made alcohol available to the people. In fact, alcohol was always available to the people, and the Roman Catholic Church never forbid nor even discouraged its consumption. In fact, they chastised people who did discourage its consumption. The Roman Catholic Church encouraged moderation. Quoting a book written by Ian Gately and published in 2008, Drink, A Cultural History of Alcohol, the first official census of England, conducted in 1577. Now, this is in that period where the Jews were excluded from England, so the Jews can't take credit for this. The first official census of England, conducted in 1577, reported the existence of 14,202 alehouses. Now, at one point, those alehouses were run by women. It was a woman's profession originally. To brew alcoholic beverages, mead, beer, was a woman's profession. They were called alewives. 14,202 alehouses, 1,631 inns, and 329 taverns. This equaled a pub for every 187 persons and excluded other outlets such as tippling houses and street vendors. In the Middle Ages, ale was the common beverage of the poorest of the British and was even consumed regularly by children in place of bread, and people would consume up to a gallon of ale a day in place of bread. Or water, because it was often not good to drink the water. So while alcoholic beverages were always commonly available, and were often abused, it was only the licentious use of such vices which was encouraged by the rise of humanism. Here we, recently here we began a series of programs called Martin Luther in Life and Death. We didn't get to the death part yet. Which we actually interrupted for our presentations of the Protocols of Satan and the Jews in medieval Europe. However, all of these subjects are intimately connected as the progression down the path to this current and supposedly post-Christian society has truly been a long and slippery slope which descends into Sodom itself and which began as soon as Europeans first rejected the Jews by accepting Christianity, but never fully disposed of the Jews themselves. When we discussed the early career of Martin Luther, we also discussed the humanists at length, 
who were among his earliest and most ardent supporters. But the humanists were present throughout the church and courts of Europe long before Luther, and in part we wrote in part two of that series, that, and I quote, over the next several installments of the series, meaning Martin Luther in Life and Death, we shall discuss the permeation of humanism into the Catholic Church, and attempt to illustrate the fact that it was the humanists, for the most part, who were also the principal apologists for the Jews. The courts of the popes, as well as those of archbishops in Germany, were filled with humanists, and those in attendance lived profligate and lascivious lifestyles at the expense of poor Christians. The indulgences which Luther protested were being used to finance the profligacy. There were many wicked forces at work during this period. If I had to quantify this period in summary, I may assert that the nobles and the people of Europe were caught between a tyrannical church and the humanists who opposed it, the humanists within it, and the Jews who were using humanists to subvert it, and the few true Christians. They were caught between that and the few true Christians who sought to withstand it all. But we had also explained in that series that while some of the early humanists could be identified as converso Jews who had infiltrated the church, many of the humanists took to dropping their own given and family names in favor of Greek or Roman names, and they wrote under those Greek or Roman names. And therefore, their true identity as either German Christian or Jew could not be readily attained. Further on, in part three of that series, we wrote, The purpose of this series of presentations is to show the condition, talking about the earlier presentations of the Luther series, is to show the condition of the Catholic faith in Germany at the time of Martin Luther, the character of the Roman Church, and the extent, the extant struggle which Christians such as Luther were having with both Jews and humanists, many of whom who were basically Catholics turned pagan early in his career, before Luther decided to split from the church and the humanists began supporting him. And a great number of them were monks and priests. Understanding these things, we may better understand the causes of the Reformation and why Martin Luther and many others believed that it was necessary. We exhibited the fact that the celebrated Catholic priest, Erasmus, was actually a humanist and not at all a Christian. By his own writing, he couldn't have been a Christian. In turn, Erasmus had fostered the development of an entire collection of fellow humanists inside the Catholic Church organization in Germany, as he was a teacher of the next generation of men. However, we were also able to see in the words of Albert III of Pio, the Prince of Carpi, and from his own correspondence with Erasmus, Pio was actually a faithful Catholic, that humanism had already become prominent within the structure of the Catholic Church in Italy, and that many more conservative Italian Catholics were dissatisfied with that development, Carpi included. Carpi had spent much of his time over several decades challenging and feuding with Erasmus until he was bereft of his principality by Charles V of Germany, the Holy Roman Emperor. 
with a partial description of these conditions, we concluded that philosophically speaking, the 1960s hit Germany in the 1500s, and that it had hit Italy in the 1400s, and there is nothing new under the sun. However, for Europe, this was only the beginning of sorrows. We have already seen in the writings of students of Erasmus, such as Mudian, that humanists were also ecumenists. Ecumenists, professing, professing the validity of all religions in the deception that all religions really worship the same God. And Mudian was not as famous a humanist or as prominent as Erasmus, but he was nevertheless a prominent man. Now, we hope to exhibit how humanists were apologists for the Jews and had fully infiltrated the courts of the papacy and the bishoprics of the empire. And that was the purpose of part three of our series on Martin Luther and life and death. The humanists being ecumenists and then being the foremost defenders of Johann Reuschlin in his efforts to assure that the Jews were able to keep their wicked books, the Talmud and the Kabbalah were indeed steeped in the immorality that the Protocols boast of here. In part 7 of that same series, we wrote, In addition to all of that, we discussed the Reuschling controversy at length. Reuschling was a German lawyer and a student of the Kabbalah who advocated the preservation and maintenance of the books of the Talmud and other Jewish writings in the hands of the Jews at a time when traditional Catholic theologians were promoting the removal and destruction of those books. The German humanists, and we'll see that the, the Kabbalah will come into play later on in Protocol 1, we won't get it we won't get to it this week, but in Protocol 1, the Jews who wrote the Protocols boast of their control of the sciences, and they achieved that control through the introduction of the Kabbalah to Christian academics, like Johann Reuschlin and John Dee. The German humanists, led by Mutian, Crotus Rubianus, and von Hutten, campaigned heavily in favor of Reuschlin and the Jews, attacking the positions and the character of the traditional German Catholic theologians unmercifully. It is evident that the German humanists hated the Church, but not simply because they saw the Pope as an antichrist or a tyrant like Luther did. Rather, they hated Christian morality and ethics and sought to replace them with immorality and hedonism. And we saw this in the writings of Hutton. We saw it in the writings of Mudian. We saw it in the writings of Erasmus. They hated Christian morality and ethics and sought to replace them with immorality and hedonism as they celebrated such Roman perverts as Ovid and Marshall. Erasmus, Mudian, Hutton, and Rubianus were all supporters of Reuschlin and the preservation of the writings of the Jews in Jewish hands in Germany. And while our historian, Johann Janssen, does not discuss the Jews themselves at any great length in relation to this controversy, it is clear that the German humanists 
all sided with the Jews against traditional German theologians. Their position was absolutely contrary to most church reformers and papal critics of the time, who portrayed the Jews as devils and evil beasts. The Jews were able to subvert Christian society as the protocols boast here through the introduction of humanism into the clergy and academia in Europe. We had observed, we had observed how the German humanists despised all things German. And we documented this in part 7, part 6, part 5 of Martin Luther in Life and Death. The German humanists despised all things German and how many of them took it upon themselves to lay aside their German names and adopt Greek or Latin names. We see this in the name of Crotus Rubianus and many others of the German humanists. Mutian is also a Latin name. With this practice, it becomes difficult to tell just how many of these German humanists were really Germans and whether any of them may actually have been Jews. Something else which is not entirely clear is whether the German humanists were sincere in their support of Reuschlin or if they merely selected his cause as a vehicle in their own endeavor to undermine the authority of the church. In any case, the German humanists displayed a clear lack of morals. Now, we have only repeated some of our conclusions on the nature of humanism from our series of Martin Luther in Life and Death. However, the series itself, we did indeed document all of the evidence which gave us the reasons for making those conclusions. And while we could not prove whether a Crotus Rubianus or a Conrad Mutianus or an Erasmus of Rotterdam or perhaps the earlier men who had influenced them may have been crypto-Jews. Here in the protocols, the Jews themselves have taken credit for them. In any event, all of these men were entirely friendly to Jews, to Judaism as a religion, and the objectives of the Jews while basking themselves in the immorality which has been promoted by the Jews throughout history. As for the last line we have read from the protocols, regarding these so-called society women, their volunteer followers in vice and luxury, the volunteer followers of the Jews' own women in vice and luxury, we will certainly have an opportunity to discuss the Jewish role in the sexual vices and prostitution further in this series. Protocol number one continued. Our motto is power and hypocrisy. Only power can conquer in politics, especially if it is concealed in talents which are necessary to statesmen. Violence must be the principle. Hypocrisy and cunning, the rule of those governments which do not wish to lay down their crowns at the feet of the agents of some new power. The translation by Victor Marsden may help to increase the understanding of what is being said here. Our countersign is force and make-believe. That's how he translated power and hypocrisy. Force and make-believe. 
And to be a hypocrite is originally to be an actor. And we use it as being self-contradictory usually, as saying one thing but doing another. That's really what actors do, that they say things that they don't live and then they go off and live their own lives, right? Our countersign is force and make-believe. Only force conquers in political affairs, especially if it be concealed in the talents essential to statesmen. Violence must be the principle, and cunning and make-believe the rule for governments which do not want to lay down their crowns at the feet of agents of some new power. Here the Jews openly define thugs as statesmen. And that is exactly the pattern that was followed in the Bolshevik Revolution and throughout the subsequent Soviet period, where the likes of men such as Felix Jerzinski and Joseph Jugashvili, otherwise known as Stalin, the Jew, were actually common criminals. Stalin was already a Bolshevik leader associated with Lenin and became famous for a 1907 train robbery which he helped to plan and execute. Dzerzhinsky was the first leader of the Soviet Cheka, and under his supervision, mass summary executions were performed only in order to instill terror in the population and quell opposition to the Bolsheviks. These are only two notable figures from Bolshevik history. There are many common criminals who commanded Communist regimes are held high offices in the Soviet system, but who are called statesmen by the Jewish-controlled Western media to this very day. It's the same pattern in the modern Israeli state, where all of their prime ministers, or just about all of their prime ministers, have been former terrorists. And I guess that's how they earn their way up to the ranks to be prime ministers. That's how the Jew thinks. The mind of the Jew is exactly the same as the mind which wrote the protocols when you compare it to the Jews' actions in history. In this manner, the protocols continue and say, this evil is the sole means of attaining the goal of good. For this reason, we must not hesitate at bribery, fraud, and treason, when these things can help us to reach our end. And when a Jew does those things and, and attains his goal, he's a hero to all the other Jews. In politics, it is necessary to seize the property of others without hesitation, if in so doing we attain submission and power. And when a Jew does this, the only time he's ever punished by Jews is when he takes their property. Of course, the Talmud approves the seizure of Goyim property. As we have already discussed, these protocols of the Jews were circulating from around the time of the so-called First Zionist Congress, which was held in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. Although revolutionary activity against the government of the Tsar had already been building, and of course revolutionary activity in Europe had existed in the Masonic lodges and the synagogues much sooner than that. In 1905, the first open revolution in Russia in 80 years had begun. There was a revolution that we'll mention later in 1825, which was launched by the Masonic lodges and failed. 
Here we are going to quote from an article which appeared in National Geographic magazine in May 1907 titled The Revolution in Russia. The article, written by William Ellroy Curtis, was, a, was originally an address to the National Geographic Society made on December 14, 1906. Curtis's opinions of Russia seem to have been formulated by 1888 when he wrote a narrative of his travels there. It can be determined from an archival catalog kept by the University of Virginia that for most of his life he was a traveling correspondent for two Chicago newspapers and had been to Russia in that capacity. But most of his later work after 1888 seems to have been in, in relation to South and Central America and there are records of this for the 1890s and through to 1908 when he was appointed a position on the Pan-American Committee of the United States. He died in 1911 at the age of 61. In our opinion, Curtis has a clear bias against the Tsar and was also an advocate of liberalism. However, his opinions of Russia must be nearly 20 years dated by the time he had written this article. And we will quote from this article in part here. We'll quote from it at length, but it's a long article. We're only quoting parts of it. The fundamental error, Curtis says, in the Russian system of government is that the officials are in no way responsible to the people or the courts. If an official offends his neighbor, if he commits a crime, if he robs the treasury or murders an innocent citizen, he is tried by his superior officers in secret and not by a court. The prosecuting witness is not permitted to confront him or to be a or to be represented by counsel and neither he nor the public are permitted to know what has occurred at the trial or what punishment has been imposed that is the reason why no one is punished for the Jewish massacres everybody knows that they were planned and carried out by the police in retaliation for the activity of the Jewish revolutionists so why should they be punished if, if the Jews are in a state of war? War is war. This has been admitted over and over again, Curtis says, but no one has ever been punished. Members of the recent ministry were guilty of revolting cruelties and acts of barbarism, but they were allowed to go without even a reprimand. When I asked why this was permitted, a prominent minister replied that it was impossible to fix the responsibility under the present system of government. Maybe I should have been a cop in late 19th century Russia. That would have been fun. Now we must wonder why the author seemed to neglect the fact that revolutionary activity is not legitimate activity in the first place. It is an act of war. And you shouldn't have to punish soldiers fighting a war. We may also imagine that the Jew would certainly take advantage of more liberal laws in order to overthrow Christendom, as the history of Jewish revolutionary activity in the West has proven. And they had already had a history of subversive activity in Russia. The Bolsheviks were responsible for the train robbery in Tiflis in June 1907. Joe Stalin himself. But this was only part of a pattern of crimes which they regularly executed. In 1906, in Helsinki, they robbed a branch of the Russian State Bank. 
which was not a Jewish-controlled central bank, and ostensibly used the proceeds of that robbery to fund further subversive activity. Continuing with Curtis's The Revolution in Russia, at present, any official knows that he will be protected in anything he does. Well, you should protect your soldiers in a war, provided his act does not offend the men above him and can defy the public and the courts. Mr. Herzenstein, one of the ablest men in the empire, the highest authority on financial and economic questions, and of unimpeachable integrity and patriotism, was assassinated last August by a policeman under the orders of his superior officer. It was a deliberate murder, Herzenstein ostensibly being a Jew, and one of the government organs at Moscow published the news 12 hours before the deed was committed. The assassin's name was Nishikin. He was absolutely identified, but he was never punished, because he was responsible to no court and to no authority except the men who directed him to commit the crime. So what we have here is somebody who promotes liberal government, where police duties are seen as different from the duties of soldiers, wants to impose that on Russia. He wants to impose that system on Russia and, and Western standards on Russia. But it was Western standards that got the West undermined a lot sooner than Russia was ever undermined by the Jews, even in spite of the fact that Russia suffered from the presence of many more Jews. He goes on to say, It is easily understood why such a condition has not been corrected. The entire bureaucracy of the empire has been united in defense of their most important prerogative. But until the officials are made responsible to the courts like ordinary citizens, there can be no genuine reform in the Russian civil service. Today we're making our soldiers in the field responsible to courts like ordinary citizens. And... It goes against the character and instincts of a man fighting a war to act like some sort of arbiter of law and get himself killed, because that's what's going to happen. You're going to lose every time. That's why this Jewish attitude of policing people, where they get spanked and, and, and their names are written down and they're sent on their way after they blow up a damn bank. This Jewish attitude is what undermined the West, and we see this in the words of Curtis, who's not even a Jew, but he's a liberal. In the third section of a famous manifesto of October 1905, the Tsar promised to make all classes equal before the law and assure the independence of the courts. In the first paragraph, he says, It is the first duty of all authorities in all places to fix the legal responsibility for every arbitrary act in order that sufferers through such acts shall have legal redress. To this, the Duma responded, and the Duma was relatively a, a relatively new contrivance in Russia, the, the, the assembly, the legislative assembly, 
To this, the Duma responded, The whole Russian people welcomed this message with an impassioned cry. But the very first days of liberty were darkened by heavy afflictions laid upon the land, by those who still bar the way of the people to the Tsar, and trample underfoot all the principles of the manifesto, by those who cover the land with sufferings and executions without judicial sentence, with atrocities, fusillades, and with imprisonment. And he's not talking about the Jews. The doom is not talking about the Jews. The doom is talking about the police. <laughs> As I have already said, the words of Curtis, the spread of socialism among the peasants during the last few years has been going on with amazing rapidity as they learn to read and write and tuck their shirts into their trousers, while a passive revolution under unconscious leaders has transformed almost the entire population of the Russian Empire, from submissive subjects to discontented critics of the ministry and the court. And of course, Curtis is implying that the Russians were ignorant, illiterate rubes, or rednecks. It is evident from the facts of his career that Curtis was most likely not in Russia in 1905 or 1906 when this essay was presented. We have already shown that any and all news from Russia at this time had reached the West through the Jewish-controlled Wolf Telegraphic Agency. We have already discussed the fact that Marxism was described by Western journalists in the most favorable terms all throughout this period. Curtis won't be that bad, but he's still a liberal. After further discussing this first Russian legislature, the Duma, which was elected in March of 1906, Curtis continues by briefly describing the members of the Assembly and their political parties, and we won't give all the details, there are many, but he says that there were 27 different political organizations representing every phase of opinion from the ultra-conservative to the red radical socialists, trade unionists, and other men of fixed purposes and extreme views. The most noisy and conspicuous were professional agitators, socialists and labor reformers, most of whom, although they called themselves the party of toil, had never earned a dollar by manual labor in their lives. They professed to represent the views of honest farmers and mechanics, and had been elected by them, but accomplished nothing and only injured the interests of their constituents. So even with his moderate view of Marxist socialism, Curtis wrote critically of the agitating class that presumed to defend the interests of the farmers and workers. He then gives a rough breakdown of the political leanings of the Duma. The members of the Duma might be divided into three groups as follows. Conservatives, 60. Moderates, 250. And radicals, 150 two and a half times the number of conservatives. Describing the parties, he says, the principal parties were first the Octoberists, so-called because they were elected upon pledges to support the manifesto issued by Nicholas II in October 1905, in which he promised his people a constitution, a parliament, free religion, 
free speech, and all that is meant by civil and political liberty. This was the fall of the Tsar right here. This party was composed chiefly of business and professional men from the great cities, landowners, and men of large affairs. Their numbers were limited, and they came nearer than any other class to support the government. Stolypin, the, pri the present prime minister, was one of the leaders of the Octoberist party. His brother is still the secretary of its executive committee in 1907 and one of the editors of its newspaper organ. Generally speaking, the Octoberists advocated a limited monarchy similar to Germany and a broad liberal system of education. They demanded a reorganization of the entire government, the reform of the judiciary, and almost universal suffrage. Almost universal suffrage. The Constitutional Democrats in their platform demanded all this and more including a ministry responsible to the parliament rather than to the Tsar. They would not be satisfied with the government like that of Great Britain. Curtis says much more about this party and the mistakes that they made, but it is too much of a digression from our main point. It is evident to us that those who desired to subvert Russia carried on a decades-long campaign of violence, and when the Russian police acted with a heavy hand in order to suppress the revolutionary activity, they somehow became the criminals in the general perception of things. I wonder if the newspapers did that. This is very similar to the current course of events in the United States, with radical groups such as Black Lives Matter playing the parts of the agitators, and when the police shoot a rabid nigger, the police are the bad guys. Curtis goes on to discuss the more extreme parties. The Social Democrats were next in numbers, and their platform was purely socialistic, based upon the theory that differences in wealth and station are wrong, and that all authority and all law are violations of the rights of man. All authority and all law are violations of the rights of man. And today in America, all authority and all law are violations of the rights of beasts. Black Lives Matter is the same Jewish treachery that we see in Russia in the early 1900s. <laughs> There's no doubt. They want a republic in Russia. So do the social revolutionists who would accomplish the same thing by violence and are responsible for the bomb-throwing, the assassinations, the mutinies, the destruction of property valued at hundreds of millions of dollars, and other crimes against individuals and society in carrying on their propaganda. So now we see why the police had a heavy hand. But Curtis, the liberal sides against the police. The members of this party defy all law. They trample upon all rights. They must have been the niggers of Russia. They are vindictive, cruel, and merciless. Oh, they were Jews, I'm sorry. They are anarchists, nihilists, and terrorists, but are always willing to die with their victims. The nerve and stolidity of the Russian revolutionists were never surpassed by any human beings. They do not seem to have the slightest fear of death and are utterly indifferent to danger.
Their boldness is amazing. Very few bomb throwers have escaped alive, and no member of the fighting group of the Socialist Revolutionist Party has broken down or even faltered in the presence of the hangman. So we should see the pattern of events which were first illustrated in the protocols, that an autocratic ruler would give up some of his power in the name of liberalism, and eventually he would lose everything to those who could then take control through the power of gold. Here we see that violence would be used to attain power, and that is how the radical subversives in Russia accomplished that very thing in little time. Then we see the protocols boast that violence would be used to keep that power. But the enemies of Christendom had also infested the conservative and moderate parties with liberalism in order to assist their own endeavor as they plead for universal suffrage and all of those other things which were basically tenets of liberalism. In Protocol 10, we read the following from Victor Marsden's translation. The mob cherishes a special affection and respect for the geniuses of political power, in other words, those who have enough money to buy guns, and accepts all their deeds of violence with the admiring response. Rascally, well, yes it is, but it's clever. A trick, if you like, but how craftily played, how magnificently done, what impudent audacity. Our goal, world power. So the Jews are advertising how they're going to get that power, and that's exactly what they did in 1917. And then a little further on in that same protocol, to secure this, we must have everybody vote without distinction of classes and qualifications in order to establish an absolute majority because they create public opinion through the media, which cannot be got from the educated, propertied classes. In this way, by inculcating in all a sense of self-importance, we shall destroy among the goyim the importance of the family and its educational value and remove the possibility of individual minds splitting off for the mob handled by us through the media will not let them come to the front nor even give them a hearing. It is accustomed to listen to us only, to the media only. How many of this how many of the people listening to this have experienced this very same thing? Every one of us have. The mob handled by us will not let them come to the front nor even give them a hearing. It is accustomed to listen only to us who pay for obedience, who pay it for obedience and attention. In this way, we shall create a blind, mighty force which will never be in a position to move in any direction without the guidance of our agents set at its head by us as the leaders of the mob. The people will submit to this regime because it will know that upon these leaders will depend its earnings, gratifications, and the receipt of all kinds of benefits, which is the exact situation in the world today. You can't get anybody out of Babylon because everybody fears being without Babylon. They fear it.
We can only editorialize at this point. To achieve all of this, there must have been different groups of Jews throughout Russia working in different capacities and using different methods in order to obtain the objectives of the protocols. And in reality, the only way that that could have been coordinated was through the synagogues and the Masonic lodges. The press must have been one of those methods, and many subversive newspapers had been shut down in their surrounding decades. The result of their efforts must have been quite visible, as Sergei Nihilus had quite frantically titled his 1905 publication of the Protocols, It is Near at the Door. Freemasonry had spread throughout Russia in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, as soon as it spread throughout France. No delay whatsoever. Catherine the Great suspected the Freemasons of subversive activities and began persecuting them. She burned their books and leading Masons had to flee Russia. Sources inform us that many of Russia's noble class had joined the lodges. In 1825, there was a Decembrist uprising, which had been instigated by the Masonic Lodges, and the objective was to force a constitutional monarchy upon the government, which is a liberal form of government. They wanted a government like we find in Great Britain. Freemasonry and other political clubs were banned until 1905, because that uprising failed. The lifting of the ban as the Tsar concedes to liberalism in 1905 should be no surprise. So the protocols insist that once it is infected, once a government is infected with liberalism, universal suffrage must be imposed upon a nation in order to weaken that nation so that it may be subverted by the Jews. And in 1905, with the liberal concessions of the Tsar, among the foremost demands of the two largest political parties was universal universal suffrage. This isn't a, a coincidence. In his 1945 essay, entitled The Jewish War of Survival, Arnold Lee said, The spokesmen of the government are fond of making speeches and writing articles to convey the false idea that democracy the sort represented by universal suffrage, the counting of heads, regardless of the contents, if any, is synonymous with freedom. Actually, democracy works out as the dictatorship of organized money power, and that is the dictatorship of the Jew. Arnold Lease was speaking of Britain, his own nation, and he understood that the Jews had already controlled it by that very means. And of course, they controlled it, wow, 200 years before that. Just about. 160 at least. Further on in Curtis's The Revolution in Russia, he wrote the following. Although the October Manifesto of the Emperor and the Constitution of Russia guarantee free speech, free press, and the right to hold political meetings, the government has suppressed a large number of newspapers and has compelled the publishers of those which are allowed to exist to sign an agreement not to advocate revolutionary doctrines, as if you could get 
a, a Jew to sign a doctrine, a, a paper asking it not to bite. Nor excite the people by attacking the arrangements for the approaching elections or criticizing the acts of the ministry. Mr. Stolypin considers it his duty to preserve the peace and suppress opinions and utterances that are likely to cause disturbances. He has announced that the government will not hesitate to demand that its officials employ all legal measures to prevent the transformation of instruments of progress and peace into the instruments of violence and destruction. So even a liberal government, even an elected official in his first liberal government, understood the threat. He has adopted, referring to Stolypin, he has adopted the same restrictive measures towards the reactionaries and is quite as unpopular with them as with the revolutionists. He treats both alike. All extreme opinions or measures are offensive to him. He's a moderate. When the League of Russian Men and organizations supporting the autocracy asked him for 100,000 rubles, to pay the expense of carrying on a propaganda in support of the Tsar and the ministry. He refused to give them a kopeck, I guess that's like a penny, whereupon they passed a series of resolutions denouncing him as a usurper of authority, as a traitor to his sovereign, and declared that his program of reforms was treasonable and an infraction of the divine right of the autocrat. Apparently the Tsar, to whom these resolutions were addressed, has taken no notice of them. He was laying prostrate. Mr. Stolypin justifies his vigorous campaign of restriction in suppressing revolutionary newspapers and shipping revolutionists to some Siberia by regiments on the ground that all enemies of the state should be prevented from accomplishing their designs by any measures that may prove effective, that the revolutionary organizations, by inciting mutinies in the army and navy, and disturbances among the peasants, by robbery, assassination, and other crimes and violence, had placed themselves beyond the protection of the Constitution and the October Manifesto, and are ordinary criminals. Well, weren't they beyond the protection of the Constitution before the Russian police were checked by the liberal by the liberal reforms. So Curtis does not see his own hypocrisy. The criminals had placed themselves beyond the protection of the Constitution and the October Manifesto and are ordinary criminals that as long as revolutionary leaders are admitted to the Duma, they will destroy the usefulness of their body. Therefore, it is his duty to keep them out and secure the election of practical, honest, and patriotic men. He contends that there can be no genuine reforms so long as the revolutionary element are allowed a free hand in politics. They are responsible for the industrial and financial depression in the empire by disturbing public tranquility. They desire to destroy. They do not want to build up. They are no men, they are men of no character, no property, no interest at stake. The enemies of society, anarchists, adventurers, fanatics, without the slightest comprehension of the science of government or the meaning of the word liberty. 
As we have also seen outlined here in Protocol 1, once infected with liberalism, either gold would come to rule or force would be used to bring the Jews to power. In most of the West it was gold, but only 12 years after the concession of the Russian Tsar to liberalism, the radical revolutionaries that Curtis describes here had managed to take the Russian government by force, in company with the sufficient support of gold, as they had gained the support of the bankers in New York and London, who were also Jews. So in Russia, there was a transition from the terrorism committed by radical Jews and their subversion of the old government to the terrorism of the radical Jews to consolidate and maintain power in their new government. So the next paragraph in Boris Brassall's translation of the Protocols reads thus from Protocol 1, Our government, following the line of peaceful conquest, has the right to substitute for the horrors of war less noticeable and more efficient executions, these being necessary to keep up terror, which induces blind submission. A just but inexorable strictness is the greatest factor of governmental power. We must follow a program of violence and hypocrisy, not only for the sake of profit, but also as a duty and for the sake of victory. And perhaps the war on terror here in the United States that we've been fighting for, oh, eight years now, ten years now, however long ago it was that George Bush coined the term, I think it was probably more like 16 years, right? Maybe that war on terror, as the protocols say here, is engineered to induce that same blind submission to a majority of Americans. In Russia from 1905, it would seem as if the Jews were on the road to the peaceful conquest of Russia that they already had in most of the West. England, France, and most of Europe had already been subjected to liberal governments and Jewish banks and were now ruled by the globalist cabal in the city of London for the most part. The Jews were thriving in Kaiser Wilhelm's Germany. It seems that the German Empire was bound to be destroyed for several reasons. But the Russian Tsar was destroyed while he was assisting in that cause. So it seems to us that the destruction of Holy Russia must have been precipitated by a greater lust, which was the lust for revenge. We will not elaborate upon that here, but the general history is clearly evident. In Russia, from October of 1917, the Jews installed a reign of terror in Moscow, made open war against all who opposed them, openly confiscated and reassigned property to men of their own party, confiscated food and starved those who produced the food. But at the same time they imprisoned large segments of the population including everyone whom they thought might be a threat to their advances, arrested or assassinated most of the officers and nobles, eliminated the Tsar and his family, and then held random assassinations each day simply by calling out the names of certain individuals and marching them out from the prison to be shot, for little reason and without any semblance of a crime, never mind a trial. 
This was done for precisely the reasons mentioned here in the protocols, whose authors claimed the right to substitute for the horrors of war less noticeable and more efficient executions. The Jew, Arthur James Balfour, was the British Foreign Secretary during the Bolshevik Revolution. He was the recipient of all the foreign reports coming from Russia into London, which reported on the events of the Bolshevik Revolution. While a few of the reports did incriminate the Jews as a group, we still cannot help to wonder what extent, to what extent they were sanitized before they were published as the Russian number one report in 1919. One interesting report, which highlights the hypocrisy that the protocols, the Jews and the protocols boast of here. It highlights the hypocrisy as well as the violent methods of consolidating power boasted all by the protocols here. It's found in report number 46, and these are all at the Mein Kampf project. They are all posted in text and in a copy of facsimile of the original document at the Mein Kampf project at Christiania. There will be links here. Note in this report number 46 that the reference to the Omsk government was to the right-wing provisional all-Russian government, part of the White Armies who had still hoped, up until as late as 1922, I believe, to defeat, to, to unseat and defeat the Bolsheviks. This was written by Sir C. Elliot, a British diplomat or part of the embassy staff. I'm not sure. To Mr. Balfour, it was received February 25th, 1919. An appeal to all democratic parties to unite against Bolsheviks has been published by the Omsk government. The reasons given are as follows. Dictatorship of one class was claimed by the Bolsheviks, and people of other classes were placed outside the law and starved. And that's exactly what the Bolsheviks did. And other reports in the protocols, I'm sorry, other reports in the Russian number one report describe that in greater detail. Bolsheviks have deprived educated classes of their votes as they do not admit universal suffrage. So the Jews seek to impose universal suffrage on nations they don't control and revoke it once they come into control of a nation, once they get that bold. Bureaucracy has been set up in place of municipal and village government, which has been abolished. Political organizations have replaced law courts, and we see the slow replacement of local governments here in America with bureaucracy, which is also, as we said, the way that the Jews impose a totalitarian government within a liberal government. They do it through the spread of bureaucracy. As for the reign of terror, and execution simply for the purpose of instilling fear and consolidating control, perhaps report number 10 is a decent example out of many possible examples, because this is one of the shorter ones that I had found. This is from Mr. Lockhart, and it's actually to Sir G. Clerk, who may be Sir George Clerk, 
who may well have been an underling of Mr. Balfour. And he says, Dear Sir George, this is written November 10th, 1918, 13 months after the Bolshevik Revolution began. The Bolsheviks have established a rule of force and oppression unequaled in the history of any autocracy. Themselves the fiercest upholders of the right of free speech, they have suppressed since coming to power every newspaper which does not approve their policy. That's the hypocrisy of the Jew. And we see that unfolding in America today, where the Jews insisted that they could say anything under the guise of free speech back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and the 70s, and now in 2016, they want to suppress free speech by labeling things as hate speech, which they themselves were saying 50 years ago. That's the hypocrisy of the Jew. That hypocrisy is never going to disappear until all the Jews disappear. And if we leave one Jew, the same cycle is going to start all over again as it did 6,000, 7,000 years ago, 7,500 years ago. Even the papers of the internationalist Mensheviks have been suppressed and closed down, and the unfortunate editors thrown into prison or forced to flee for their lives. The right of holding public meetings has been abolished. The vote has been taken away from everyone except the workmen in the factories and the poorer servants. And even amongst the workmen, those who dare to vote against the Bolsheviks are marked down by the Bolshevik secret police as counter-revolutionaries and are fortunate if their worst fate is to be thrown into prison, of which in Russia today it may truly be said many go in but few come out so i guess it was like the hotel california the worst crimes of the bolsheviks have been against their socialist opponents of the countless executions which the bolsheviks have carried out a large percentage has fallen on the heads of socialists who had waged a lifelong struggle against the old regime but who are now denounced as counter-revolutionaries merely because they disapprove of the manner in which the Bolsheviks have discredited socialism. The Bolsheviks have abolished even the most primitive forms of justice. Thousands of men and women have been shot and even without the mockery of a trial, and thousands more are left to rot in the prisons under conditions to find a parallel to which one must turn to the darkest annals of Indian or Chinese history, if indeed they ever really kept it. The Bolsheviks have restored the barbarous methods of torture. The examination of prisoners frequently takes place with a revolver at the, pointed at the unfortunate prisoner's head. The Bolsheviks have established the odious practice of taking hostages. Still worse, they have struck at their political opponents through their womenfolk. When recently a long list of hostages was published in Petrograd, the Bolsheviks seized the wives of those men whom they could not find and threw them into prison until their husbands should give themselves up. The Bolsheviks who destroyed the Russian army and who have always been the avowed opponents of militarism 
have forcibly mobilized officers who do not share their political views, but whose technical knowledge is indispensable, and by the threat of immediate execution have forced them to fight against their fellow countrymen in a civil war of unparalleled horror. And if they were real men, they would have accepted the execution. The avowed ambition of Lenin is to create civil warfare throughout Europe. Every speech of Lenin's is a denunciation of constitutional methods, and a glorification of the doctrine of physical force. With that objective in view, he is destroying systematically, both by executions and by deliberate starvation, every form of opposition to Bolshevism. This system of terror is aimed chiefly at the liberals and non-Bolshevik socialists, whom Lenin regards as his most dangerous opponents. In order to maintain their popularity with the working men, with their hired mercenaries, the Bolsheviks are paying their supporters enormous wages by means of an unchecked paper issue. Until today, money in Russia has naturally lost all value, and that's exactly what they're doing in America today. They're doing the same exact thing. Even according to their own figures, the Bolsheviks' expenditure exceeds the revenue by thousands of millions of rubles per year. These are facts for which the Bolsheviks may seek to find an excuse, but which they cannot deny. They didn't need an excuse because nobody held them accountable, because the Jews were in control of every nation that was in a position to hold them accountable. Now returning to the protocols, the ultimate goal of all this Jewish terror is clearly stated. A doctrine based on calculation is as potent as the means employed by it. That is why, not only by these very means, but by the severity of our doctrines, we shall triumph and shall enslave all governments under our super-government. The methods of the protocols have been tried and effective in different ways throughout the histories of the various nations in the West. The first reign of terror was in revolutionary France, and in the United States, even though the nation has long been under the thumb of a Jewish-controlled central bank, there is always the possibility of resistance so far. So revolution after revolution, black riots, student riots, mestizo riots, had pushed the country slowly towards a point similar to that in which the Tsar found himself at the interim between the two revolutions. Without a doubt, the Jews seek to destroy the homogeneity and stability of the white population because that is their only credible threat until something breaks. All of the nations of the West will edge closer and closer to the brink. Thank you for listening. We will be taking a hiatus from the series on the protocols of Satan as we travel throughout the balance of the month and we will return to it in early November. Praise Yahweh, and good night.